I was told and taught in my life that you should always learn to fight your fears. You should always learn to meet your disadvantage and advantage. When I went to school, I mean, I was in the national team of three sports. I mean, there's this award that is given in high school called the Gentleman Sportsman of the Year, where only one person gets it before you leave school. And I was that person. And one would not even imagine there's a record that I have in school of having scored the highest number of goals in the history of school in soccer. I scored 46 in 23 games. Things like this, I could have simply sat down and said that I've got asthma, I can't do this. But you know, I, I fought it out and I believe I managed to live through it and emerge stronger. But that is something that taught me a lot in life as well. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 53 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Raul Chaudhry, Managing Director and CEO at CG Corp Global and CG Hospitality Holdings, and also the son of Vinod Chaudhry, who is the first and only Forbes-listed multi-billionaire from Nepal. I first came into contact with Raul last year through a mutual friend. I was hiking up to Everspace Camp when the pandemic hit, and nearly every hotel in Kathmandu was shuttered. But Raul kindly offered me a place to stay at one of his hotels until we managed to secure a flight back home. In this episode, we explore what it's like being a part of a 140-year-old family legacy. A legacy that comprises over 90 companies and 60 brands that cover over five continents. From being a sporting champion in school to striking his first business deal in New York, where everything that could possibly go wrong did. And how the hospitality arm of the group has expanded, first through partnerships and then in launching their own brand. And how the group has continued to thrive throughout the pandemic. So are you ready for Raul's story? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. I wanted to go all the way back to your great-grandfather, who I believe was born in 1870, and you take his birth as the origin of the Chathari group. And he was the person who moved to Kathmandu. And I wonder, growing up, was he someone that you heard about a lot in terms of who he was as a person, how he influenced your family? Actually, the history and foundation and origin of our group started in that year itself. If it wasn't for my great-grandfather, we wouldn't be here today. And the foundation of our businesses and our lineage started at that time itself, passed on from my great-grandfather to my grandfather, and from my grandfather to my father and now us. Obviously, those times were very different. My great-grandfather was uh, born in a state called Rajasthan in India. And that is the backdrop or the abode of the community where Marwadi's origin. And uh, Marwadi's are supposed to be very astute entrepreneurs. And some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the world are Marwadi's and have originated from Rajasthan itself. Yes, they have gone from their villages and cities in Rajasthan itself all over the world and done pretty good for themselves. So we do come from an entrepreneurial background by blood, you can say. 
And uh, my great-grandfather set the founding stone and he moved to Nepal together with my grandfather. My grandfather then came here and learned the ropes, I would say, through my great-grandfather, how to become an entrepreneur, how to handle the, the businesses. I remember that my great-grandfather used to take my grandfather everywhere and he started off with his business. And uh, it all started when he came to Nepal and started selling textile. And he was selling textile to the royal family at that point in time. He used to be on a courtyard, you know, because he could not look up at the ladies and the women in those days when they're looking down from the window. And he used to lay down the cloth and the textiles on top of that for them to see. And then they would choose and my grandfather would then take that textile upstairs to them, you know. So obviously, it started off in a very humble way. No doubt. I guess the most important factor of any family business is the continuity of heritage, culture, tradition, and values. And all of these culminate what we call a foundation. And that is the most important for any family business to survive and to see the light at the end of the tunnel with future generations coming on. It was so long ago when your great-grandfather moved over. You still talk about these values. Clearly, you're still very connected to that heritage. I wonder what it was growing up that allowed you to feel so connected to everything that your family is and how it originated from when you were born in Nepal and you grew up here. So it would be natural to assume you have no connections left with India. Actually, that's not true. I'll tell you why. Because I had the fortune of obviously spending a lot of time with my grandparents. Obviously, all of this was passed on to my grandparents, right? So they did a lot to pass it on to us and through my parents as well. So we had that continuity when it comes to still having your feet grounded as well as being connected to your ancestors and to Rajasthan itself. And also to keep in mind that I went to a boarding school to India. I was there from class 1 to 12. So I was there for most part of my young years itself. And a lot of time used to be spent in Rajasthan as well. So we were always, my parents would always make sure that we were still connected with our roots and and are aware of where we came from. That's most important for a proper continuity for times to come, you know. And I don't think our parents ever or my grandparents ever forgot that because uh, they felt it is most important to us as well. And... uh, That's how we grew. So we've always been in touch with our our value system, our culture, tradition, morals, as well as our entrepreneurial foundation as well. And uh, that's what has come to use till now in our lives. What were the most important values growing up that your grandparents, your parents taught you and your brothers? I think the most important would be that never forget where you came from. Because our family has come from very, very humble beginning. And my father in one of his interviews, has had mentioned that I'm a humble man from a humble country with big dreams. And I think that pretty much sums up the biggest learning that we have had from our last two generations itself. That's number one. Number two would also be in terms of the respect and the appreciation that you offer for your past generations. Because you wouldn't be where you are today if it weren't for them. And you have to always appreciate that and value. That is very important. Third would be, I would say, the process of learning and the knowledge that is imparted on you, which is expected to be imparted on the future generations as well. So when it's a family business, it is a business that has been there for the past 100, 150 years. 
but will go on for many more hundred, hundred years, thousand of years for times to come. I think these are three most important aspects that our family has taught us. Obviously, and I mean, needless to mention about the way in doing business, the way that one should be in terms of valuing money and the way that one should value labor. And when I say value labor, meaning dignity of labor. And also from the perspective of how one should look at business while giving back to the society as well. Because the society has given you so much appreciation. The society has given you so much love. And you are where you are because of what they feel about what all you have done. And we must always take that into consideration as a core value of our group, which is one of the most important pillars of CG as well. You talked about love and giving back to society. And it makes me think of, and this is something I read in your father's book, that as Marwadi, you're the oldest trading community, but being in Nepal as Marwadi, I wonder what that means and how it's impacted you. Because it doesn't sound as though people are necessarily open and they might even go so far as to consider you foreign, even though you were born there. Is that correct? Yes, Ling. I think, I mean, the reality is what you said, actually. That people do, I mean, we are not hardcore Nepalis from the perspective of having Nepalese origin. I mean, that goes without saying. Obviously, we have an Indian origin. But having said that, we also came to this country over 100 years back. Everything about us is Nepali. We all have Nepalese passports. We have grown up in this country and we associate ourselves with Nepal itself. The local Nepalese may have a different, I won't say everyone, I would not like to generalize. But uh, you're always going to have some bad apples, as one would like to call it. But that's okay. I mean, the way I look at life is that there are going to be some people who don't say good things about you. Is the time when you know you're doing something right. But anyway, leaving that aside. Yes, for us to come to Nepal, we do have an Indian origin, no doubt. And that brings with it a lot of advantages. And being a Nepali, having Indian origin also brings with it disadvantages. But we have managed to maneuver those because we don't get wrapped up around our origin and where we came from and the color of our skin and so on and so forth. We believe ourselves by heart, mind and soul that we are Nepali and we are here for the people, with the people. And we are continuing to do that from that perspective itself. And and there comes a point in life where you start ignoring the less important things that don't matter. And you start focusing on things that matter because those that will appreciate what you have done and appreciate what you continue to do are the ones that you should take along with your journey towards your larger vision. And I wonder that kind of awareness of just focusing on the good and moving forward, was that something that you always had as a child? What were you like growing up? I read in your father's book as well that he said you used to suffer from asthma attacks as well. and You had to rush to the hospital at night. Again, this is something that was taught by my father, my parents rather as well, that not everyone is perfect. Everyone comes with certain natural problems or, I mean, you are born with it. It's just up to you how you look at it, whether it's a glass is half empty or glass is half full, you know. Yes, I did have a challenge, no doubt, when I was very young because of asthma, because in those days, obviously, medication and healthcare was not to the extent as what it is right now. So yes, I had to go to the hospital quite often. And my mother used to spend pretty much most of the nights she was with me and taking care of me. But I could have looked at that as a negative in my life. But I didn't do that because I was told and taught in my life that you should always learn 
to fight your fears. You should always learn to make your disadvantage an advantage. When I went to school, I mean, I was in the national team of three sports. I mean, there's this award that is given in high school called the Gentleman Sportsman of the Year, where only one person gets it before you leave school. And I was that person. And one would not even imagine there's a record that I have in school of having scored the highest number of goals in the history of school in soccer. I scored 46 in 23 games. Things like this. I could have simply sat down and said that I've got asthma, I can't do this. But you know, I, I fought it out and I believe I managed to live through it and emerge stronger. But that is something that taught me a lot in life as well. And the foundation of what was imparted to me by my parents was something that I used in school and I harnessed that. And I continued to do that in other aspects in life as well. So sports always teaches you a lot about how you are going to handle yourself in your life now and in the future. Whether it's called teamwork, whether it's team spirit, whether it's your own training, it's your own preparedness, it's your dedication, it's your hard work. All of these are fundamentals of sports and fundamentals of life. But I was not an excellent student either. So I did capitalize when I was a sportsman and I made the most of it. So I, I looked at it very differently in terms of me having asthma and I made it my strength, you know. And to put it in context, your father said that they actually hesitated to send you because they were worried about your physical condition. And then you emerged the sporting champion. <laughs> I will tell you, Ling, it was not easy for my parents as well. I mean, I can just well imagine how difficult it was for my parents. I was just six. And you can imagine for them to send me to a foreign country in India in a boarding school at the age of six. And my mother, she's a very strong woman, but very emotional when it comes to her children. I mean, my mother used to cry even when I went to college. Okay, so, so, so of course, it is very difficult for them. But I think they felt that if it would be difficult for them now, they, would, they had that confidence and that faith and hope that what they are hoping for and expecting after the education is what they are looking at, the bigger picture. And I think that's what they did. So they just let a bird free and he let the bird fly. That's what they call it. I mean, you were only six and they're saying it's a Wilhelm then Dune school and your father had to go through so much effort just to get your elder brother and yourself into the school. Why was it so important? for them that you need to go to that school at such a young age? Nepal did not in those days, by the way, have good schools. My father, unfortunately, had to step into business when he was 18 years old because my grandfather had a cardiac arrest. So obviously my grandfather, uh, he survived, but he had to obviously not get into the core businesses, day-to-day -day businesses. So my father did not have the opportunity to go to school like we did. I mean, in class six, it's in class 10 itself, he had to step back. So he had no uh, education of class 11 and 12 or thereafter. So he wanted his children, obviously, to have a better platform and a better education. And Dehradun is supposed to be like the capital of schools in India. And he had by then, you know, made a lot of friends. He went to any extent to make sure that we were sent to the best boarding school in India at that point in time, which continues to be. So obviously, it was very important for him to give his children a platform which he could never, unfortunately, get. And that's what he did. And so after doing school, was it clear what you were going to do? Were you going to go straight to university or come back help the family? Actually, 
uh, funny thing is link that even when you are in doon school or you are in a boarding school or in college i would say more so in boarding school we used to get holidays twice a year for two months each in the summer and winter yes our parents used to take us for a holiday during the summer and winters for a week two weeks but we used to have two months holiday while many of the children would be staying home and playing their toys my father would ensure that we are spending time one or two hours in the office sitting in the side of the conference room or doing something with some of his office people just so that our process of learning starts at a very very early stage after we all finished our high school yes i mean we obviously got the basic fundamental training during the holidays when we were coming back home but yes we were expected to go to college we did that we all went to respective colleges all across the world but after we finished our bachelor's degree we were very clear that we wanted to make sure we work full time in our company itself to learn before we go and do our masters and i'll tell you i've never i've never done my masters education till today it was i felt that vinod choudhury school of business administration has been my masters education so that has really really helped and i would also say that even during college i used to work funny story i'll tell you that my father bought me the best car in university but you know what he said that i'm not paying for your insurance nor am i paying for your gas the petrol you have to earn that yourself so what i used to do was i used to work in the kitchen washing dishes and wiping tables and wiping floors i mean that go- that goes on to teach you about dignity of labor and i did that i did that and i learned from that and even for first two years of my school i in university i did that after that i used to structure my classes in such a way that three days in a week i used to have classes packed and then after that the four days in a week i used to travel to look for business opportunities to grow in america so that's what i did in university and the first deal i ever closed was actually the year after i graduated from university in 2006 we closed the deal in america so it was all a process of learning right from the beginning you know so just before we go to that first deal i was looking at the timeline you were studying at miami university around the same time where back in nepal there was the civil war between the maoist insurgents and the army which really impacted your family i wonder if you were very aware of what was going on and how it impacted your family no we were obviously aware but asian family being asian parents they obviously like to shield their children from any adversity or any negativity to the extent possible so while we knew what was happening and obviously it is no hidden truth that during an insurgency the ones who are targeted are usually the influential families and that's what had happened i mean fortunately god is kind that he protected us and it wasn't anything got to do with the threat to anyone's lives i mean the country was in threat altogether so we obviously were a part of that whole movement movement in the sense part of uh, the process of the insurgency we were affected in many ways from business and our general day to day lives as well but we managed to maneuver it and like i said all of us were not there we were in our colleges i think my elder brother nirvana was studying in nepal at that point in time but varun and i were not in nepal so we were more focused outside and my parents also did everything possible to make sure that everything that happens outside continues to grow and with two children already outside his focus was to do that through them that that's how he had planned his future legacy as i would call it you know so you said you were going around searching for years for deals how were you making connections in a country that you had not grown up in 
actually through my father. My father used to connect me to people that he knows in America itself. And you know, my current partner, we still have a hotel in uh, JFK. My current partner, they're also a very influential family from Sri Lanka. And his son, my father's friend's son, has lived in New York or in America now for the past 25, 30 years. So obviously he knew people there. So I was actually also learning the ropes from him. You know, Was this uh, the Mo- Mohinani's? Yes. This is indeed the Mohinani family and they are into hotels in Sri Lanka as well as India and wonderful Amman assets as well. And with him, I learned the ropes of doing business in America and uh, that's what it was. <laughs> I read in an interview, you said that you, know, you did your first deal in New York and everything went wrong with it. What was it? <laughs> wow, you've done so much of research. I'm amazed. <laughs> Very impressively. No, yes, you are right. That first deal was a very important learning for me because I remember I was in a single room at the Hilton on Avenues of America where I spent almost two months and we transacted a deal of almost $60 million. So you can imagine that a student who's just coming out of college is working from this small tiny room and transacting and talking to such big people in the industry, not having known what he's in for. So I I mean, everything I did, I must tell you, Ling went wrong. Whether it's negotiation with the operator, with the seller, with the bank, everything. I mean, I can literally write a book and it took us one year to close that deal. But having said that, I think that was the biggest learning in my life. My father says that that was the most expensive learning for me and him. But but I can say that that learning really shaped my thinking in terms of looking at deals, evaluating deals, as well as concluding deals. I mean, those were the times when I did a deal at for two, in, within 12 months. Now I can look at the same deal and close it within one to two months itself. So, so it's all a process of learning. We still have the asset there. Uh, We are constantly evolving and looking at ways to improve the earnings and monetize our investments. But uh, yeah, it was a brilliant learning. And funny thing, another funny story I'll tell you. The reason why we invested in America is because I told my father, I want to live in America, you know. Now, can you imagine an Asian family, one of the children of the three saying, oh, I want to move away and go to America. That's a big blow to an Asian business family. So my father thought that he must have a business in America so that it's worth it for one of his children to go there. And that's how the first hotel came about. Now you can see destiny has it that I spent less time there and more time here now. And I love spending time in this part of the world now. You said that you had many learnings from how to you know, evaluate deals, close deals. I wonder at a high level, what were those main learnings? What are the things that you look for that allow you to determine this is a deal I want to proceed with very quickly? Uh, the most important, I would say, while uh, looking at any deal is your entry value. And when you are talking about a hotel and real estate, that is pretty much the most important aspect. And if you're looking at a greenfield that is building right from ground up, you have to look at keeping your cost basis to the bare minimum. Same thing with regards to an operating hotel. You have to be able to buy that hotel at the bare minimum price. I mean, think of it this way that There is a reason why two people can never be happy in a buy and sell. Because the the one who's selling will always want a higher price and the one who's buying will always want a lower price. Now, being able to 
come to a meeting ground requires a lot of homework it requires a lot of diligence to be able to give that rationale why you believe the value of that property is what it is i mean what we have done all our lives is we've always bought into companies and assets by way of its earnings the way we look at it that you can build let's say taj mahal in new york but if it doesn't make you money then what use is that real estate right there right so you can build whatever you want if you are not able to make the required returns it doesn't matter what exactly you are building whatsoever so you have to be able to customize your thinking with that aspect fundamentally second would be from the perspective of your strategic fit there are a lot of deals that we did just purely based on emotions by the way we like the asset we like the country and we want to go and buy that asset but we did not at that point in time i would say almost a decade back we were not fully clear yes we want to be here we want to be there we were very opportunistic like any businessman and whenever we would find a good deal we would start evaluating that so i believe that it's also very important to look at how important is it from your long term perspective or your short term now we as investors are a long term investor you know we don't believe in just flipping assets but in hindsight we should have done that so you see it's a process of learning and strategizing whether you are putting in money for the short or the long term itself and also strategy plays a very very important role on where you see your group going over a period of time these two rather most important fundamentals are okay you'll also be able to survive the the downturn i mean i'll give you an example we bought all these assets even during the subprime of 2009 and during the earthquake here and during all the turmoil that the world has faced in different parts of the world for the past 15 years we've still survived we've not had to sell even one property until a year or so back but we've survived because we managed to keep our fundamentals of the business at a realistic and sustainable level and there was one particular story that i picked up from your father's book and he said that he had written off this deal with concept hospitality but then you were actually pushing on me for 2 years and there was a breakthrough i wonder what it was that drove you to really push for it for so long and how that breakthrough came about <laughs> i think i would call it an entrepreneur's gut feel you know my father always used to say it's a part of his book as well he was asked once that how did you make all these deals all your life and and what was there to help you and you know what he said that my children have the luxury of the internet have the luxury of the digitization have the luxury of technology have the luxury of intellect of other people who are far better prepared and far better in place to be able to advise you he said i had none of those which is correct all i had was my entrepreneurial mindset and a gut feel and i think i also managed to pick up or learn from that in a very important way this deal you know came to us concept hospitality uh, this is one of our most important investments i must say before the deal came to us the deal just simply went through but somehow while looking at the fundamentals of the deal and who concept was talking to to close the deal I read a little bit about that company as well by the way but I was not I was quite clear in my mind that uh, after having done my research that I don't think the deal is going to go through because maybe the history of that company who was in negotiation with them because they had not closed such deals in the past and these guys were also while they were in contract but I also believe that they, they were looking at keeping the door open I gauged that you know 
So I kept at it. I was keeping with a very one of the most leading investment bankers, or let's say a, a consultant. His name is Homi Ibarra. You know, he was in India, and I mean, he's no more. He was he was literally my guru when it comes to uh, evaluating hotel deals and getting hotel deals in India. And his son continues to be leading the business in the right fashion, and where his father had taken it. But anyway, he brought the deal to me, and I would keep in touch with him every two months. I would say, "How are things? How is the deal going?" He would say, "No, it's not come onto the table. Those guys are looking at transacting." And one fine day, destiny has it. He said, "What? Are you still interested?" I said, "Absolutely, I'm interested." And then immediately, I met with the founder of that company in India, and within a period of three to four months, the deal was transacted. And today, we are the second largest management company in India. And you mentioned, you know, earlier that you wanted to stay in the states. How did that mindset change? Because you moved back, and you were actually in Singapore as well for a time. Actually, and I think you hit the nail on the head, Ling. Because you see, I spent two years, one and a half, two years in New York after my university, and then I moved to Dubai, and then I moved to Singapore, then I moved to Delhi, and then to Nepal. So you see. After having spent a lot of time in all of these places, I mean, think of it this way: 2008, I started spending a lot of time in 2006-7. I was between Dubai and New York or America, right? And we had already closed the hotel, but Dubai at that time was at its all-time peak. I mean, Dubai was going through the roof when it comes to opportunities. Then the subprime crisis happened in America. So my confidence in the market in America started shrinking. While my confidence in the Middle East market, and then I moved to Singapore, and I saw the capital market because the first one, the first market that was that had gone under, let's say, was affected in the world was Singapore, and the first market to come out of that crisis was Singapore also. So it also showed me the resilience of Southeast Asia, especially Singapore. And I spent time in Singapore, and my mind started changing more and more about Southeast Asia and the opportunities in Middle East Africa. Indian subcontinent and Asia and Southeast Asia, and then we never looked back. And then we started investing in companies and investing in deals one after the other. I'll tell you, Ling, that when I first came into the business, we had about four hotels in 2006. When I came into the business full time, I mean, after a lot of effort and guidance and in line with my father's vision, today we are at 150 hotels with almost 8,000 keys in 12 countries. So obviously, something has been something we have done right. I would say, I would hope to say, we've grown in our own humble way, but I think we've grown at the pace that we want to, and mostly in these geographies or continents that I mentioned. We still have only one hotel in America. Otherwise, if our focus was there, we would have expanded to many more. Right from the very start, you knew you wanted to have a global focus, and I. Understand that at least for Nepalis, there is also a dual purpose for you being in Singapore as well, because the Nepali law states that you can't invest freely outside of the country. But then you found a way around it. How does it work? Well, actually, my father, and this is what vision and dream comes from. A dream is only a dream so long as there is a vision backed by the willingness and the capacity to execute. Me and my brother, my Nepalon and myself, are both non-resident Nepalis. And uh, my father was a non-resident Nepali for the longest time, and he started the company back in 1993 outside of Nepal. And we started making investments in these companies at that point in time. And then we were always non-resident, and we continue to maintain that status. 
and we continue to live outside of Nepal as well. And we have always grown all over the world. I mean, me and Varun are the ones who are, through being a non-resident Nepali, are the ones running the investments outside. And another very large proponent of CG hospitality is your partnership with Touch Group. When that first happened, it was a surprise to many in Kathmandu. So how did it all start? Oh, absolutely. Uh, like that was the, I would say that there was the breakthrough. Yes, that was the breakthrough for us in our hospitality, entry into the hospitality vertical. One can just imagine that a group like IHCL, which owns the Taj brands and which is owned by IHCL, is an enterprise of the Tatas. I mean, you can only imagine behemoth like the Tata group is coming and investing in hotels from an individual in Nepal. Or someone all over the world, they come and invest with someone in Nepal. There must be something about it, right? And I think it had got to do with the vision of my father that I think they were aligned in doing this together. And that was when Sri Lanka and Maldives was also going through a very tough time. And that is when Sri Lanka was going through its worst time when it was the insurgencies. Now, people would look at my father and would say, oh, this guy has gone crazy. I mean, he wants to go into a country which is at war. I mean, in those days, making that investment was huge. It was pretty much like taking out everything from your savings accounting and putting it into one basket, you know. But, you know, this comes into another fundamental point, which was once a statement, you know, an interview was done with Lee Kuan Yew. Lee Kuan Yew was once asked, which other country do you see in Southeast Asia and this part of the world, Indian subcontinent, which could become the next Singapore? And he said Sri Lanka. He said the fundamentals of that country are right. It is a peninsula in the middle of the Indian Ocean and it is only going to do well. I think that message really resonated with my father. And he made a plunge into that business. And look where those properties are today. I mean, those are some of the most iconic hotels in the Taj system today, including in the world. And we started with those three hotels. And I, I will always say this in every forum that we have a lot to thank Taj and we are grateful to IHCL to have taught us the ropes of hospitality. I mean, they are an incredible company and their value system, their just ethics and morals, the way they do business is phenomenal. I mean, otherwise they, they wouldn't have created the company that they did. And we are so proud to be in partnership with them, you know, and we also continue to be one of the largest partners as well in the system today. What do you think are the signature ways in which they do business that allow them to have grown to such an extent? Well, I think it's similar. I think in terms of our way of thinking of how we evaluate deals, how we look at the fundamentals of the deal, how it is a strategic fit and how it fits into the larger picture of the growth strategy itself. I think that's how fundamentally Taj has grown as well. They capitalize on their core market, which is India. You see what they have done, which is very smart, and that's how it should be. They have a captive market of 1.5 billion people. And they are the largest company in India. And they have, I believe, over 200 assets now, with majority of these in India itself. I mean, they have a captive market. And keep in mind, the largest travelers in the world today are Indians and Chinese. So wherever Indian market goes, they set up their operations in those countries. And they're successful in doing that. I mean, that's what we are trying to aspire to. Not saying that Nepal is in any way comparable in terms of the catchment market, but Nepal has a lot to do with the Chinese and Indian market as well. 
And what we have done from our growth strategy link is that we've always entered frontier as well as emerging markets. Yes, we have made investments in some of the markets which are more strategic, like New York. It was a strategic investment and it was a very good investment because the perception in the people was exactly like you are saying it yourself, that we are a hotel manager, hotel company based out of Nepal, but has made investments in Sri Lanka and Maldives. We are a hotel company out of Nepal and is the only company that is a hotel in, in New York. So you see, this has helped in the yesteryears of our hospitality foundation and the perception. And I think that's what Taj has managed to do as well, very well. And now you see Taj all over the world. They're also in 12 countries, while we are also in 12 countries, by the way. Yes, there are about 15, 20,000 keys, no doubt. And their assets are world-class. And I have the highest admiration for that company. And aspiration, one in a, in, a, in a way one would like to call it. But yes, so I believe we both are quite similar when it comes to our way of thinking and undertaking business. So was what you were bringing at the time when you were forging this partnership with Taj, the fact that you could help them expand beyond their Indian market, where I believe they were focused on very much at the time? You see, at that point in time, ICL owns the Taj brand. ICL only had a few properties outside of India. And I believe they had one in London, they had uh, a few in Sri Lanka and few in Maldives, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so Taj had not grown too much out of, of these markets. So yes, you're absolutely right that the vision there was to come in and grow in the markets that Taj is already not in. And that's what we have done. We have grown with Taj. We've been with them for the past 20 years. We have assets with them in India, in Nepal, in Sri Lanka, in Dubai, uh, in Phuket. So we have developed a circuit with them in these markets and we continue to look for opportunities. Another one of the interesting opportunities that you also went into was with the CEO of Conservation yes. Corporation of Africa. How did that happen? Because it's so rare to see someone also getting into managing jungle lodges. Well, Steve, unfortunately, is uh, no more, but his family was the one who started the CC Africa. Now it is called and Beyond. And, and Beyond is probably the one of the largest gaming companies in the world. And they have some fantastic and amazing lodges all over the world. And they also have, by the way, a travel business. And the travel business is called And Beyond. And we are partners with And Beyond, the inbound travel company in India, Nepal, Bhutan, Sri Lanka, and Maldives. And that continues to be a big business. But my father was good friends with Steve and Nikki. They were the power couple from CC Africa at that point in time. And the desire was because India was just ready to blow up. And so much of culture, so much of opportunities and so many places to see. So my father and them thought that this would be a very important segment of business for years to come. And that's when they decided to identify four locations in central India and Madhya Pradesh. And that's when it all started and Taj decided to come together with us. So Taj, CC Africa and us started this uh, journey with the Taj Safari Lodges, which is very successful today. And we have the fifth one in Nepal, in the Chitwan Wildlife Sanctuary. And I think one of the unique things that Steve taught was that you are here to sell the experience, right? People who can afford it, they want the experience as opposed to anything else. Absolutely. No, you are 100% correct. And I can tell you, Ling, that hospitality has moved from your regular generic bed and shower and all of these, these are important, but now you are not selling a bed. You are selling an experience altogether. 
and people are going to hotels and staying in hotels to have that experience right from the time you book till the time you check out and thereafter as well obviously you've been collaborating with so many people you must have thought i want to start my own brand which is zing how did that whole idea come about why is it called zing <laughs> about i would say 10 years or so, i think 12 years 10 12 years back after having been in the hospitality industry and learning the way hospitality works we decided that we want to go down this journey of creating our brand one thing i will tell you and everyone who's listening that it's not that easy creating a brand is one of the most difficult things you can ever do and that is the reason why you have brands like marriott that have bought starwood you have brands like accor that have bought fairmont raffles movenpick because to create a brand is so difficult you would rather invest and buy a company that already is well aware in the market but having said that not everyone has the access to capital but if you are willing to create a brand keep in mind that requirement to create a brand also requires a lot of capital so if you are willing to be patient if you are willing to be in it for the long run it is something that you should do but if not then i would really advise you against that and what we decide we we embarked on this journey the idea was linked to create a brand like virgin meaning that you create one brand and that brand could be used for let's say clothing line for an airline for a vodka brand so one brand itself now you can debate whether the zinc for all of these different segments but we thought it was quite catchy at that point in time and it still continues to be because we are growing with these brands itself because we have merged these brands with concept and now concept has the fun brand beacon and zinc and its offshoot brands that it is growing through this management company itself so it continues to grow in its own humble and in its own organic way so that all our past years of hard work and monetary investments doesn't go to waste what was it like trying to launch the zinc brand was it eric who had to leave and there was a huge stumbling block there Eric Levy yes so Eric had joined us to help us grow the brand itself yes for one reason or the other he had to move on but i mean we also obviously moved on i'm i'm still good friends with Eric there is no doubt about it i still respect his work but then like i said that we shifted the brands to our own management company which is concept cg hotels and resorts and now that brand continues to grow through that business itself One of the things that you mentioned was also that you entered into Dubai and you were there very very early on. I read from your father's book that he was initially very hesitant and he did not see the opportunity behind it at all. So how did that change come about because now you have done so many exciting things that are happening in that region? Well, seeing is believing. I think my father went to Dubai in 2005 or 6 and when he went and saw you know the time that he traveled before that was in 2003 at that point in time dubai was a desert there was nothing there and when he went in 2005 and 6 and he saw how this whole country is transformed and what the fundamentals of the, i mean the his highness the ruler has created he immediately bought a house there itself and he moved one of his children to dubai because the fundamentals again of that region was so good you know it was seeing and believing what was on the ground that changed his entire fundamentals of that place what was the journey in going to your first venture which is with jabal ali with nakil obviously when you enter that market and the opportunities were at were with the real estate itself 
the mindset was very different in Dubai at that point in time. It was the short term mindset, meaning that you buy, you flip, you buy, you flip. So we had to change a little bit of our thinking there. And obviously, Jumeirah, uh, more than Jumeirah, sorry, it was Nakeel and Imar. Those were the two developers led by the government of Dubai who were in the forefront of creating new projects. They were building projects like they were building hotcakes every day. Every day they would come up with a new idea and they were selling a dream, you know. And it was amazing that everyone was buying into this dream. And for Dubai, size does matter. And for Dubai, concepts do matter. They want to build bigger and better. They want to build something that is not even there anywhere in the world. I mean, how can you ever not buy into something like that? And when they are actually creating and building something that you can see. So we all bought into this dream. And I think they did a wonderful job, but they could have been a little bit more cautious. I mean, that is what happens when you are entering a system that is very new, still to such developments and to such advancements. I think they moved too fast, too quick, and they would have actually continued on that growth trajectory if it weren't for the subprime crisis, which was hardest hitting to the real estate sector. And that's what happened. But having said that, I think everyone becomes wiser. Everyone becomes more thorough and systematic. And I think you can see Dubai. I mean, it is one of the financial capitals of the world. So it has learned from what it had to learn. Dubai continues to take the forefront of business and real estate and hospitality. In 2019, you entered into Taj Jumeirah Lake Towers. What was the thought process behind wanting to build your own hotel from the ground up? <laughs> We've been in Dubai for the past 15, 20 years, like I said. We were there even before 2005, six before uh, I moved in and my brother came in there because of our foods business, you know, why, why? We were there for so long. I would say it is the gateway between the East and the West. It's right in the center. And the whole world gets connected in the Middle East itself. And we were growing our operations there. And one of us was living there. So we thought that we must have a bigger footing in that market, must have a bigger investment in that market. And that's how the being of Taj Jumeirah Lake Tower came into place. I mean, I remember I was the one who put the first foundation stone in that hotel. And <laughs> Jumeirah Lake Tower becomes is literally like my own baby, like the Megali in Chitwan Safari Law Park. And uh, I have been involved in that project for the past eight, nine years, right from the first brick itself and to what it is today. So it's a very special project for me. I think uh, it's making a lot of marks and is really making a statement for itself in Dubai and the segment it is in. Another big thing that you are doing as well is that you're a director of Pre-Stella Venture. How did the idea of starting your own fund come about? It all started with my dad's visit to California, by the way. My father was there and he met a, a very interesting gentleman. I'm forgetting the name of the company, but pretty much the guru, you can say, of startups. I mean, he had done multiple startups. I mean, starting, buying, selling, getting them going, monetizing. And he was really, really intrigued by the unicorn investments that here we are spending years and years in turning around one investment and here an idea that is the likes of your Facebook or the likes of your Google. I mean, these are companies that are not even making money today and are worth billions and billions and trillions of dollars. And there is no justification to it. I mean, these are all ideas. So that's when he started thinking that, you know, I must, and a lot of these many Nepalese entrepreneurs were also writing to my father 
tweeting to him and writing to him personally that why don't you start something like this? There are so many aspiring Nepalese entrepreneurs around the world. They want to do something. They are in other countries as well, apart from Nepal, where technology and access to capital as well as access to the startup ecosystem is much better. And that's what, you know, my father tweeted. And he said that he wants to create this venture capital, which is going to be predominantly focusing on Nepalese, but also for other parties as well. Oh my gosh, when he made that tweet, he got thousands of people writing to him with ideas and opportunities. And that was the start. And we decided to start Pressler Ventures with a partner here and with a partner in Singapore. We made already three investments, two in Singapore and one in India. And we decided to take it a little bit slow because of COVID and it's been really, really speculative, you know. So we've decided to make it a little bit slow. We've invested in four, actually. One more through our investment company called Torana with my local partner in Nepal, who are also partners with me in hotels, leading family here as well. So we have invested in these. We are continually looking at opportunities, but now our focus has more shifted towards venture capital investments into well, investments itself rather than startups only. It could be in projects, it could be in acquisition, it could be a stake in a business that we don't possibly know which has clear, good fundamentals. So we are looking at investing still, but as venture capital investors, not into startups. You mentioned some of the startups that you have already been involved in. I was looking into them and I was very intrigued that they were so different, that you have student housing, logistics, IoT. What were the things that you were looking for that stood up among these companies? It's all disruption. We were partners with people who already knew this segment knew this market. It was very new to me. It was very new to CG from that perspective. So for us, the fundamentals were very clear that we see a strong disruptor. We see a segment that is only going to grow up and also the other parties that are involved in that venture already. You know, and we did not want to be a very, very small investor in that startup. We wanted to have a little bit of a significant stake so that there is an upside and one could downsell as well through a higher valuation. It's all about exploring newer horizons of business, yet being careful in being able to recover your capital as one would balance the thinking of an entrepreneur with one who is a venture capitalist. The thinking of both are very different, completely different. An entrepreneur thinks differently than a venture capitalist. Venture capitalist is willing to take the risk. Venture capitalist is willing to take a minority position. A venture capitalist is willing to go through with an idea. An entrepreneur will want much more tangible ways to convince oneself that this is the right investment. If we had to do a lot of balancing between the two to come up with the right mix of investment as well, you know. Was it difficult for you to take on that VC hat since it's so different from what you've been doing all this time? Well, it was more easy for me, but it was very difficult for my father because, because you see, he comes from a very traditional way of investing, right? He comes from the position, as I mentioned, of seeing is believing you're not seeing anything at all. It's all ideas that are evolving with technology. And we all, me too, initially was the same thing. I, I didn't even understand. I mean, if you really ask me till today, I do know the fundamentals of IoT, but I really don't know the technicalities of it at all. So I was investing in the business. So you see, there are a lot of these technicalities and I would never do it alone. I will definitely do it with someone who understands this space. You know? And that's what we did. Another thing I wanted to talk about before we wrap up is the foundation, which was founded in 1995. What was the 
thought behind starting a foundation? This goes to the first question and second question you asked me, Ling, that uh, the fundamentals of any family business should be on how you can give back. Our core motto for our group is touching lives every day. And that doesn't necessarily mean only by way of products and services. It most importantly also means touching your lives and how you are moving because everyone is not fortunate. People go through difficult times. The world goes through difficult times. And it's in those times that a group's fundamentals and its emotions and attachment to the society and its people comes to the forefront. And we were always with that mindset to give back. But I think what completely changed or what became even more evident was at the earthquake in 2015, when literally Nepal was sent back to its stone age, as I would call it, you know, people lost their lives, people lost livelihood, they lost their just everything in 2015. And we had to be in the forefront. And that's what we did. And since then, we've never looked back. I mean, every crisis that happens in this country, we are CG can proudly say that we are always the first ones to take the first step on how we can give back and how we can, let's say, hold the bull by its horn and make sure that we support and help our people. You know, At the time when the earthquakes happened, didn't your father say that no matter what, we are not leaving this country, we're staying back to help? Absolutely. You know, it was, uh, I clearly remember that meeting with the family link and uh, my father and myself and my elder brother Nirvana, we were actually at our safari lodge in Chitwan when the earthquake happened. The biggest brunt of the earthquake actually came to my mother and my wife, who were actually in the city, in Kathmandu, because Kathmandu was the worst hit, right? Away from the epicenter. And I remember us driving back to the capital and my dad held a meeting with the family. And, you know, all of us were debating, what should we do? Oh, there's an earthquake that's happening every two hours. We keep getting the shaking of the earthquake all the time. We were discussing ideas. We have our homes all over the world. Maybe we should go away. We were all discussing. We never said that we were going to do that. But then my father said that, no, this is the time when we all have to remain together. This is the time when our own people, CG, its own family, of our stakeholders and our employees need us, including the country. And we are going to be here. And tomorrow itself, we are going to start a drive by going to the most remote areas and reaching out to the people we need. And I remember my wife and I, every single individual went to the most remote areas around the country to distribute food, tents, torches, whatever we could, because there's only so much you could do. And we did that. And we are very, very happy that we did that. And, and we've stuck with that principle always, you know, even let's say during COVID, we could have literally gone to a country where vaccine is easily available or life is much better, like Dubai, right? Dubai has been literally up and down, but it's been open virtually since the whole COVID. I could have done that. We all could have done that, but we never did that. We stayed here. We've gone through it with our people. We are willing to do that also all our lives because we owe it to them. And speaking of COVID, when was the first time you heard about it and you realized that it could have very severe implications for your own personal lives and also your operations around the world? You know, March 19th, 2020, when the government made that announcement that COVID has come and the country is going to be shut down, I mean, none of us knew what COVID is, right? We were all going into an uncharted territory, knowing that there is a pandemic. There is no doubt about that. But, you know, what really changed my thinking, I will tell you, and this is the biggest value add that you get from a boarding school and interacting in colleges. You know, I 
My father also said this, that his biggest resource in life and his biggest wealth is his network, not his net worth. I remember the week after the 19th, we have our group, my batchmates, we are about 76 of us that, gra- that graduated the Dune School in India in 2001. So we all decided to set up a call just to share ideas of uh, what is happening in their part of the world. It's all, they're all all over the world. So it was very interesting to me that everyone was sharing their views of what they had to deal with or what they were dealing with in their part of the world at that point. And that came to me, you know, that this is not something that is going to be here for the short run. It is going to be here for the long run and one must prepare for it. And you know, what better way to get feedback? My friends are literally in 34 countries around the world. That covers all the continents around the world. And these guys are in different spheres of life. Doctors, professional spheres, financial institutions, entrepreneurs, sportsmen, travelers, bloggers, I mean, startups, all spheres of life. Each of them had a fundamental thing to say that right from the guy who's a hawker stand all the way to Bill Gates is being affected by this pandemic. And this pandemic is not going to go for any time soon. And here we are sitting today, Ling, almost one and a half years later, you and me were discussing before this call that things are even getting tougher. And, then, and yesterday in the news, I saw about India preparing for the third wave. Nepal is in its second wave, now going into the third wave. Kenya is already crossing its third wave. Some countries are in its fourth and fifth wave. So that call really changed my mindset that everyone is speaking the same language. And I recall that dinner also on the 29th or 30th of March, 2020. I told my father that, trust me, this is what I have discussed with my schoolmates and we need to prepare ourselves for the long run. We should prepare ourselves with a three-pronged strategy, survival, revival, and thrival. That should be the strategy that we should adopt. And immediately we have to relook at the business model of all our operations, whether it's food, whether it is hospitality, whether it is telecom, whether it is electronics, whatever it is, cement, hydropower, whatever. We have to look at it from the point of view that now technology is going to take the forefront of everyone's life and disruption is going to take the forefront. We have to evaluate our business from the perspective whether we are going to even be existent in 10 years from now and from the perspective that how are people going to continue their businesses and survive by way of technology. You've seen that technology has made the world this small when it was this big before. So that's when our entire process of restructuring our cost structure, reimagining our business models, rethinking our strategies, all of these came into the forefront. And I would like to say, and with again, with all sense of humility and modesty, that all that we did right at the beginning has helped us now survive and we continue doing so. Otherwise, we would not be able to even stand up or be with you right now and having this interview. And I can tell you, Ling, that I always say this to my wife and my father, that I have actually never worked so hard in my life as I have done since March last year. And then, yes, it has more been in terms of Zoom, which has also made things very efficient and very productive. Not saying that it should happen all the time because personal meetings are also very important. But the point I'm trying to tell you is that so much time and energy has gone to get this, to come to this survival mode. And we were just getting into revival at the end of last year. But now we are back to survival mode all over again. 
and I foresee that this is going to take some time. But you know what? I mean, as we all say, don't try and control something that you can't control. Try and control something of what you have control over. That's what we are trying to do. You said you made some changes to the business model. And I would say very successfully, like Vivanta is profitable. The farm is, you've said before, doing even better than before. What were the changes that you introduced that allowed them to thrive in this time when most hotels can't even open? Three different things, uh, Ling, very simply. One would be the cost structures. I mean, the cost structures that you were operating with pre-COVID, there is no way you can survive with the same cost structures. Absolutely no way. So you had to look at efficient ways to reduce your costs, efficient ways to have engagement with your institutions and vendors. It is the first time I can tell you where every single party to a business came together. In the hotel business, I'll tell you from vendors to your banks, to your customers, to your operators, to your owners. Everyone came together because one cannot survive without the other. And everyone had to make compromises in order to survive. And they did that from the cost structures point of view. Number two, your business model. I mean, when you talk about Vivanta itself, let me talk about that itself. We were never an F&B hotel. We were an F&B hotel, but we never used to do delivery. I survived the entire COVID by way of F&B, by delivery. My F&B revenue was 85% of my total revenue every month. Third is with regards to being able to tap a completely different market, which was non-existent or not our focus. Take the example of the farm as well as the Vivanta itself. Local market was not my focus, even the farm. I never targeted on the local market because we felt they could not pay or afford to pay the prices. The whole year I've survived because of locals. It's amazing how much the locals are able to pay given the option of being able to stay there. They had no option, right? Everyone wants to take a holiday. Everyone wants to stay at a world-class hotel. Everyone is shifting towards wellness and food. Everyone is shifting to well-being. And that's what we offer. And that's what the local market gave you. So we've opened a completely different market altogether for ourselves. And I can tell you that leisure, wellness, experiential, these three markets are going to take the forefront of hospitality for years to come coming forward, I can tell you. And what is next for you and for CG Hospitality? Is Vision 2025 still present? Absolutely. Vision of 2025 is still very much present and active and in process. Obviously, in terms of our plans, some may have been delayed, some may have been put aside, but we are very much on target. Towards our vision itself, we continue to look at investment opportunities. We continue to look at ways to grow our current businesses. So we are very much on target towards that goal. We have spoken so much about your family and how it's influenced what you are doing. What are the strengths and challenges of bearing the Chalkhari legacy? The strength is also the biggest challenge. And I'll tell you why. Strength is something that what all our past generations have created for us. A system, a reputation. That is the most important that has been created by our forefathers and continues to do so in terms of our reputation in the global arena. I would say the businesses and the platform that has already been set I think the biggest challenge would be for us, as everyone would say, to bear, not the burden, I would say to be able to keep up and wear my father's shoe. I think that would be the biggest challenge for us to be able to achieve. 
But I think that three of us together, hopefully we'll be able to make him proud and be able to fill his shoes. Is there anyone in your industry that's doing something you admire? And why is that? Well, I would say that I do admire lots of entrepreneurs. I wouldn't say specifically towards a, a certain sector of business. I would say someone like your Ratan Tata from Tata Sun. I mean, he's a huge, huge inspiration to me. And uh, seeing what is his philosophy of life and yet running one of the most ethical and the most successful businesses in India is just phenomenal and how he has done it. I would also say when you are talking about, I mean, I would say role model, I would say my father in itself. My father as Vinod Chaudhary, not, not as my father. I mean, we have a lot to learn from where he came from and where he is today. That has taught us a lot in life in terms of balancing all aspects of life itself. And third, I would say from the perspective of giving back and taking care of people as well as making you believe the importance of being happy. Our Guru Shri Shri Ravi Shankar from Art of Living. I mean, he has a very, very big bearing and very big influence in our lives, you know. That's why I wanted to state the three people one is from the perspective of the vision of how one can take a company from where it is to where it should be. That would be Mr. Ratan Tata and my father. And one person like Sri Sri Ravi Shankar, who brings about the aspect that success is not only monetary. It is other things as well. Family, well-being, personal attention. It is your happiness, peace. And that all these are fundamentals to your a wholesome and a happy life. And before we wrap up, is there anything you believe in that you feel most people don't? Again, this is touching upon the fundamentals of the first and second question again. I, I believe that lots of families in our generation now tend to forget where they came from and they tend to forget that they have a responsibility towards the legacy that has been created and they have a responsibility towards the future generation. And a legacy is created for continuity. A legacy is created for passing it on to the future generations. A legacy and history is created so that your future generations can also grow up, learning those fundamentals so that the foundations are very, very strong. I mean, I, I, I feel in a way that as, and that is actually also my fear, you know, because I believe that as generations keep getting built, I believe that there is that risk of this being lost in translation somewhere. And it's very important that we take on the responsibility to create that bridge and continuity year after year. You know? People do take things for granted. And I think people are too dependent on technology and digitization. They end up forgetting the fundamentals and core of life in itself. And maybe I'm a party to that sometimes as well, but I'm working on it. I'm working on it and I hope I'm able to balance that out. So speaking of legacy, have you thought about your own legacy and what kind of legacy you would want to leave behind? I think I am a part of a family, proud so, a Nepalese family of the only multinational Nepalese family. And we want to continue that legacy. We all know our path, whether it is from business or giving back or from our family and the continuity. We want to continue growing our horizon all over the world. We want to continue being able to be called 
and everyone should feel proud every nepalese around the world should feel proud to say that there is a company that is a multinational and is in that platform you know we started off the first company ever to hoist our flag in our hotel in taj glt and every time a nepali passes that hotel whether it's a taxi driver whether it is an entrepreneur whether it is a customer he looks at that flag and proudly says that that is my country's flag and that flag has been put by the cg group which is a nepali group and nothing gives us more joy and satisfaction when we hear that feeling you know appreciation is the most satisfying parameter for a success of a company and appreciation comes in various different ways whether you give back whether you create something whether you do something with people many ways to do it and our purpose is to continue on that mission wasn't there a taxi driver who told your dad that hotel belongs to nepali not knowing that your father put that flag up there <laughs> yes absolutely and that's what i mentioned in the past the last question as well i mean just imagine and i'm saying this with all again sense of modesty and humility here is the the only billionaire from nepal and this will tell you the whole fundamentals of family business and of an entrepreneur who has not forgotten his roots and who has not forgotten where he comes from and has built that foundation of respect and trust for others and continues to grow i mean you see my father traveling in a taxi in dubai with a nepali who's showing him the flag which he hoisted and telling him i am so proud you see that flag that is my flag created by a nepalese company Now I hope that can easily sum up to you what we are trying to do as CG and what we as individuals of the Chaudhary family are aspiring to do. I hope this in a nutshell summarizes our entire interview. <laughs> yes. And do you feel like you have found your why? I believe so. I believe so. I feel from a business point of view I think I have stated that in many of the questions that you have always asked me I would say even finding my wife from a personal point of view and family point of view also I think I have found that most importantly I would like to say finding my why I'm working towards it but I would say finding my why would be when I'll be able to fully balance the five pillars in my life and the five pillars are your business your family your personal self your friends and the society all of these are five fundamental pillars of knowing yourself that you reach that one and each pillar is very very important life is a very dynamic miracle you learn along the way and you evolve around along the way so let's see And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? One is humility. I mean, it's great to have a vision and a dream, but you also must have a plan of action to be able to reach that vision and dream and that willingness to be able to go to any extents to reach that dream. You know, when I left college, right, playing my father sat me down and you know I was a very good soccer player and he asked me, "So Rahul, what do you want to do?" I was thinking that bad, I I'm a very good soccer player maybe I want to give it a shot. And you know what he said is that I have absolutely no issue in you following or wanting to do whatever you want in your life. But just remember whatever you wish to do be the best at it and don't settle for anything less. Now, 
if you are able to remember that and follow through with your ambitions sky is the limit don't let anyone tell you that you cannot achieve what you want to do but have a clearly charted out plan to be able to reach there i can also tell you that world has evolved in such a way that there is always someone who is going to believe in your worthiness as well as believe in what you have created it's a process of time of finding that niche for yourself but stay at it and i'm sure you'll be able to achieve it and where can people go to find out more about what you and the cg is doing go online the world has become so small that you can just type a name and everyone can see what we are doing nowadays but i think it all comes from people also noticing what all we are doing and wonderful people like yourselves who want to discuss with us in our own humble way whatever we manage to create and spread the news i think where we would start on where they can read about what we have done is in your channel itself and is there anything else you like to share that we haven't covered yet No I think I pretty much covered the 360 I I I hope that I've covered all aspects here of my humble journey and my humble life and where we want to be in years to come the whole idea in anyone's life it may sound cliche but I believe that we are here for a purpose and we want to leave behind a legacy that people will remember and a legacy that has touched people's lives and something that people will always remember you for. And that was the end of episode 53. The show notes and transcript can be found at sothisismywhy.com forward slash 53, alongside a link to subscribe to the weekly newsletter for this podcast. And stay tuned for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting a Russian artist and illustrator known for drawing with paper, and one who's often credited for pioneering contemporary paper quilling. with her original artworks being owned by the likes of Oprah Winfrey, Wimbledon, Paramount Pictures, and the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. If you want to learn more, see you next Sunday.